you're listening to a Bellacat Discord server stage talk titled Tracking Damage in Gaza and Other Conflicts. This week we were joined by Ollie Ballinger. Ollie is a lecturer at UCL and has been a regular contributor to Bellingcat and an active member of our open source community. He is particularly efficient at building useful tools for open source research and has a bunch of contributions on the Bellingcat GitHub at github.com slash Bellingcat. In the Discord stage talk, Ollie spoke about his latest tool, a damage probability map, which he has adapted for many different conflict areas, including Gaza and Ukraine. To put it simply, the map shows infrastructure and land that has a high probability of damage, backed up by multiple open sources from satellite imagery to geolocations. Ollie explains the minute detail in the discussion. The talk was hosted by me, Charlotte Marr, on Thursday the 14th of December in the Bellingcat Discord server. Hello and welcome everyone to the last Bellingcat stage talk of 2023. I know, I know. For this final discussion, we have the wonderful Ollie Ballinger. Ollie is a lecturer in geocomputation at University College London and is a regular Bellingcat contributor. He's worked with us on incredible and data-heavy research this year, tracking the movement of Russian ships in occupied territories using satellite imagery. But today, he's here to talk about his latest tool that helps map probable damage in the Gaza Strip. With the continued bombing of the Gaza region, this tool is helping media outlets and researchers highlight the bombardment's likely impact. As Ollie talks, please put all your questions in the chat just there, and I'll ask them once we move into the Q&A section of the discussion. Polite reminder, make sure that you're respectful in the comments, especially as we'll be talking about an ongoing conflict. I can't wait to hear more about how this tool works. Uh, so Ollie, I will cross over to you and give you the stage. Great. Um, thanks, Charlie. I will share my screen. Oh, wait, I have to I have to give Discord permission to see my screen. One sec. Um, I apologize in advance for, um, the people who are going to be listening to this on the podcast, because this is going to be a very visual, um, presentation. Uh, great. Okay. I am going to talk a bit today about, um, like basically how to do damage detection in the context of uh, conflict using entirely open access, uh, satellite imagery. Um, this is sort of lazily adapted from like a conference presentation. So it, um, there will be sort of technical bits. I will do my best to sort of, you know, make sure to explain like the intuition behind the technical bits. But, um, if anyone has any questions, drop them in the chat. I will sort of pause and go back to the chat every so often. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of wanted to give broadly an overview of like how this works, because I feel like that's what a lot of uh, people are interested in, uh, sort of a peek under the hood. And then um, I want to show you a bit of ongoing research related to this. So as was mentioned in the description, the application of this algorithm that I've been developing to Gaza um, came basically this came out of work that I was doing on Ukraine to detect damage in Ukraine. Um, and I've now applied it to Gaza, but as, as part of my research, uh, at UCL, I'm trying to make sure that this algorithm works kind of wherever that's, that's one of its, um, selling points is that it should be able to work 
um, in, in virtually any context. And, and we're going to look into how and why that's possible. So I'm, I'm not just going to show you Gaza today. I'm going to show you um, building damage assessments in the context of the wars in uh, Ukraine and uh, Syria and Iraq as well. So uh, I'll, I'll get into that in a bit. And then finally, I will sort of go into the tool itself and give people an overview of how the tool works. Maybe actually we start with that because um, that's probably the, the most um, intuitive place to begin to, to show you like what it is we're talking about if you haven't uh, read the article or if you're new to the subject. So basically what I've been trying to do is um, building damage assessment in the context of conflict using only open access uh, data and, and methods. Yeah. Okay. Great. So this is this is the map, um, the Gaza damage proxy map, and um, yeah. So this colorful overlay is a uh, damage probability map. Uh, the yellow areas are areas in which uh, there's some probability of there being damage, but it's sort of an edge case. It's it's uh, borderline. We may not be super sure about it. Uh, and then the darker these colors get, as we move into red and purple. Uh, the, the higher the certainty of, of damage. And we can sort of zoom around and look at individual neighborhoods and get a sense of where the damage uh, has been occurring. So beyond getting kind of a bird's eye view of where the damage in Gaza is occurring, and, you know, we can, we have a, a clear sense that like most of the damage has occurred in the north. Um, what this also allows us to do is conduct sort of building level damage estimation. So if we click this button here, uh, which is uh, draw an area of interest, and we draw a box over a particular area, what the tool does is um, basically joins the building footprints, uh, so just the outlines of buildings, to the uh, damage probability uh, map. So it will then give you an estimate of the damaged buildings in a particular area. So in this area south of Zaytun, we can see that uh, we have an estimated, uh, you know, between 700 and 1,000 damaged buildings, which corresponds to between 65 and 87% and of the buildings in this area. Um, and we also sort of uh, pipe in population density data. And that population density data comes from uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So it's a uh, it's an estimate of it's a very sort of like fine grained estimate of uh, population. So we get uh, an estimated affected population of between 27 to 36,000 people in this one area. Um, if we zoom in, uh, and this affected population is basically the estimated number of people that lived in areas that are now uh, deemed to be damaged prior to the conflict. So an important thing to note is that this isn't obviously like an estimate of civilian casualties or anything like that. Um, it's sort of giving you an idea of how many people lived in this area prior to the conflict, um, which is then sort of useful in terms of thinking about the number of people who are are permanently displaced. Um, and in all likelihood, this is probably a low end estimate because um, th this algorithm is mainly suited towards picking up on uh, destroyed buildings, right? Buildings that are, have, have basically collapsed. So 
there's in all likelihood quite a large number of buildings that have been severely damaged but have not yet collapsed. So those buildings are probably also unsafe. Um, so the, the true number of sort of permanently displaced people is likely to be uh, quite a bit higher than that. So obviously these are estimates, right? Uh, we're trying to infer damage from satellite imagery uh, and there's gonna be error involved in that process. We have, uh, I, I've implemented like a number of quality control measures and um, sort of accuracy assessments on this. And we're going to I'm going to show you exactly how that works in a minute. But there are a couple of those available uh, directly in the tool. So one of the things um, that you can use to verify damage is uh, this layer here in the layers tab, which is called um, Unisat damage points. And what this is, is basically um, points that the UN. So the UN satellite agency, Unisat, whenever something like this happens, they download very high resolution satellite imagery and they manually comb through it and identify damaged buildings. And they sort of drop a pin on the damaged buildings that they're able to see in the satellite imagery. Now, this is obviously like a highly accurate process, right? If you've got a bunch of people um, painstakingly combing through high-res satellite imagery, you're going to be able to uh, be sort of very accurate in, in your estimates. The issue uh, is, is sort of self-explanatory, right? It's hard to do this repeatedly. Um, it's also maybe feasible to do it in the context of Gaza, right? But in the context of other conflicts like Ukraine, for example, you, you can't really do that process for the whole country. Nevertheless, in, in Gaza, I've imported the Unisat damage points as a way of doing like quality control on the damage estimates. So if we look at these two areas here, for example, Isbat Beit Hanun and Beit Hanun, we see that the model's predicting quite a lot of damage, right? We get these heavy purple areas. And if we layer on the Unisat damage points, we can see that those areas are indeed like clusters of points that manual um, damage estimators have have found to be damaged by combing through the satellite imagery. So um, th that's one way of assessing the the accuracy of this process. And, and you can see even sort of more disparate damage over here, right? There's agreement between the locations of those Unisat damage points. Um, and the model's predictions, which are these uh, purple and blue areas. But it's important to note that they're not perfect, right? We're missing some damage over here. We've got um, a couple points over here, and we've got some points here that we're missing, right? So one thing that I want to make very clear about all of this is that uh, all of this is estimation, and there is error in the process of estimation. So we shouldn't take... Uh, any of this as being the the absolute truth, right? As is the case with all sort of open source um, investigations, we want to triangulate. We want to look at, uh, we want to fold in as many different types of data and sources of data and make sure they're telling us the same thing so that we can be certain about our conclusions. So uh, one layer is the damage probability estimates from from uh, the radar imagery. Another layer is the, um, the the Unisat damage points. And then as a third layer, I've uh, automatically ported in these geolocated conflict events. So these are 
this is basically footage that um, GeoConfirmed, which is uh, an organization that um, basically involves a number of geolocation experts. It's a sort of community-based geolocation uh, platform group sort of thing. I don't know exactly what to call them. Um, but what they do is they basically trawl social media, so Twitter, Facebook, um, Telegram, and they look for um, footage, photos or videos of uh, fighting. And then they try to geolocate that footage. And once they've done that, they put it all into basically a spreadsheet where they have uh, the media that they've geolocated, as well as um, the latitude and longitude of that uh, media. So what we can do with these um, geolocated conflict events is if there are sort of areas in which we don't necessarily have um, the UNISAT damage points. So like here, for example, uh, we can see the model is like predicting some damage in this area. We don't really have UNISAT damage points. So what we can do is zoom into this area and click on one of these geolocated conflict events. And it will sort of tell us a date that it occurred. It'll give us a sort of short description of what it is. And then there's a link to the source media, which if we click it, will show us um, the video that's been geolocated. So in this context, uh, it's a footage from the immediate aftermath of a strike. And if we go back here, there's another link here that's geolocation. This corresponds to the thread in which the person that has geolocated the footage, so you'll remember this still frame from the footage, uh, this is basically the, the um, you know, you're showing your work, right? If you're claiming that this strike occurred at this location, uh, this is why. So in this case, Chris is sort of using the features from the uh, video that we've just seen to geolocate the footage uh, to a particular uh, area. And that's why it's showing up here. Um, and there are a number of these uh, that can be toggled. So this is a building uh, that's been hit. If we click on this one, we'll see the aftermath of an airstrike on the International Eye Hospital. Uh, this is the example that we used in the article. And yeah, if we click here, we'll see the uh, the source media that um, that that tweet is referring to. So that's the International Eye Hospital clearly been destroyed. Um, and if we zoom in, we may even be able to, yeah, um, you can't really see it there. But then if we go to the geolocation over here, we'll see the, um, the basically the process of, of the geolocation of that, uh, of that footage, right? So we're using these sort of visible features here. Now, again, geolocation is not an exact science. These building damage um, estimates from the radar imagery are also estimates. But what happens when you combine uh, several imperfect measures uh, of, of a certain thing, then uh, you ultimately end up with a fairly good 
overall estimate of what's going on. So this process of triangulation is very important. And that is sort of what I've tried to get going in this uh, in this tool. So the tool automatically updates as new satellite imagery becomes available, and it automatically ports in new geolocated conflict uh, footage as the team at GeoConfirmed um, geolocate that footage. So that's a brief overview of the tool and how it works. Uh, does anyone have, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pause for questions really quickly. I don't, uh, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the chat. Um, do, 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 are there any It's people questions? saying how brilliant you are at the moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, nothing much else. Thanks. Yes. I, I wanted to ask just, just okay. quickly while you're, while you're waiting for a question to come through. Um, Mm-hmm. You mentioned geoconfirmed. Obviously, uh, it, it's really great that that's on the map. How how reliable are the geolocations done by geoconfirmed? Could you speak a little bit about that for people who aren't familiar with the organization or the the effort there? Yeah. So, uh, and, and full disclosure, I myself um, am not involved in in geoconfirmed in in any way. This is sort of a community community led. Um, geolocation effort and what what i yeah i mean there are there are some similarities between the process that geoconfirmed use to the process of like peer review where you know as you can see right every one of these links has a geolocation um uh link and the person that's claimed to have geolocated a particular event has to sort of show their uh their sort of methodology and there are a sort of a number of people that look at that and um you know i'm i'm not 100 percent sure what the exact sort of protocols that they use are in terms of you know they have to have a majority of people agreeing that this is a correct geolocation um but their geolocations have been used uh quite widely in in a lot of um investigative work and they're generally sort of um, quite rigorous in, in what they do. I've, I've sort of seen many of them operate. Um, and like, again, it's not an exact science, but, you know, the, the process of bringing together several imperfect measures is, I think, what's, what's important. And what that yields is ultimately... Uh, something that is greater than than the sum of its parts. So, um, yeah, I think the geoconfirmed stuff is imperfect, but it's a good way to get a sense of. Uh, it's certainly better than nothing in terms of uh, if there's an area where we're registering high amounts of damage, but we don't have any um, like external validation data. It can be very helpful to get sort of a, a sense of the ground truth. Um, any other questions in the chat? Yeah, Wamas has asked, uh, amazing as always, Oli, how does your tool differ from the analysis by the DDMG, uh, which I believe is referring to the Distributed Damage Mapping Group, which is conflictdamage.org. I don't know if you're familiar with their work. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a group of uh, researchers. So I'm, I'm in this uh group chat, which is what it is, uh, right now, basically. And, um, they, so there are some like methodological differences in, in what we do, but we're 
looking at very similar issues. And what the DDMG is, is basically a uh, group of researchers um, and, you know, not just remote sensing people, but like uh, a wider group of researchers. There's some other people um, from that group in the chat right now that sort of just share resources and um, uh, yeah, have a common sort of uh, like thematic and methodological focus. Um, in, in terms of the like exact differences between what I'm doing and what uh, the, uh, like the maps that are coming out of the uh, that are displayed on conflict damage are, um, I am using the amplitude of the synthetic aperture radars return signal and uh, they are using the um, change in the phase of the return signal and we can get into what that means uh, in a minute if, if people want to but um, I would say they're spiritually very similar in that they use uh, the same sort of or very similar um, input data and try to achieve the the same sort of output so uh, quite similar in in some ways and then some important differences in in other ways um, Michael asks, great work with the tool and always interested in seeing new methodologies reporting building damage detection. Two questions regarding your methodology. Um, within your t-test methodology, you create four statistics based upon BV, VH, ASC, and DESC. Would this algorithm work with areas of the world that do not have both ascending and descending passes of Sentinel-1 available? And rather than using a cutoff value based upon the mean of the four t-test statistics, have you tried instead training a basic ML model, machine learning model, like a random forest using the four statistics as the feature space? Um, you might be covering some of this in a second, I'm not sure, Ollie, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Can you answer that um, now or is it part of your uh, presentation? I, I might just use that as a segue <laughs> um, for the for the technical sort of details. Um, yeah, So so that that comes on like slide five or six so i will uh answer both of those questions in in short order so let me just talk quickly about what uh like yeah what goes into making these damage maps so yeah the the abstract slide is uh you know straight from the <laughs> academic conference but basically there is a problem with general uh damage assessment so the state of the art currently uses deep learning on high resolution optical satellite imagery. Now these, um, like, yeah, there are a bunch of problems with this. The first and, and simplest one is that satellite imagery, high resolution stuff is really expensive. It's usually not freely available. Um, training a model, uh, the training like a deep learning model is often quite expensive as well. Um, Optical imagery is not consistently available, so we have things like clouds that kind of get in the way. Uh, and a lot of, so the vast majority of high-resolution satellite imagery has to be tasked. So you need to tell the uh, providers of the satellite imagery to take a picture at a certain place versus um, a lot of the open-access satellite imagery, including the imagery that I'm using for this, uh, this uh, test is uh, persistently collected so it's just constantly imaging and um uploading the the data as it becomes available so 
there are yeah a number of benefits uh, in in using open access satellite imagery in particular radar imagery uh, the final sort of shortcoming of the current state of the art in building damage assessment that uses deep learning and these neural networks is that they generalize quite poorly so um i was at a conference a couple months ago um and some people were using neural networks on high resolution imagery to detect damage and they were doing it in the earthquake for Turkey that happened uh, in February of, of uh, this year. And they wanted, they had retrained, basically fine tuned the model in Turkey and they got sort of better performance. But then they tried to use the model that they fine tuned in Turkey in Syria, you know, just a couple uh, hundred kilometers away and sort of similar geography, terrain. Um, and they said that they had like some pretty significant issues in terms of the model being able to uh, being able to generalize even that sort of short distance. So you can imagine the difficulties in in using this approach uh, across like different sort of biomes or like vastly different geographies. So a lot of these neural networks um, and, and high resolution approaches are able to deliver like really high accuracy in the sort of carefully bounded settings that they are trained in but a lot of the time they struggle a lot more uh in terms of generalization so there are a bunch of problems with this state of the art in um yeah building damage assessment so sentinel one is a synthetic aperture radar satellite um this for those of you that aren't familiar with radar satellite imagery uh you can picture optical imagery as basically just like pictures from space it's as if you had a camera in orbit and we're just snapping pictures um the radar satellites see the world in a very different way they see the world in much the same way that a bat sees the world they send out a pulse of radio waves and listen to the backscatter in the same way that a bat you know makes a, a chirp and listens to the echo so you lose visual artifacts things like colors and shadows and stuff like that uh, but you gain sort of a, a highly consistent um, measure of the sort of ground surface. So like topography and and texture. So what we're looking for in terms of uh, building damage is largely these sort of textural changes. Right. And here's a sort of diagram of what that looks like. Um, the return signal to the Sentinel-1 satellite is going to be highly consistent in an urban area over a long period of time, right? Like buildings don't tend to move around very much. They're, they're static. And if the satellite is passing at the same angle every time, um, it yields a very sort of stable profile for a given pixel. If there then is a dramatic change in the texture of a particular area, for example, a building collapsing, that's going to affect the amplitude, so the uh, how loud, basically, the signal that is reflected to the radar satellite is. And yeah, so there are a number of benefits to this, but I think the, the easiest way to explain what's going on is to sort of show you. So here I have two images of a neighborhood in Mariupol. It's in the sort of northeast of the city. This is a uh, high resolution optical image from 2021. This is an image in um, mid 2022. So after the invasion, obviously, and we can see quite uh, a 
an extensive amount of destruction has occurred in um, in this area since the onset of the war. This is the radar profile of that building. So this measures the amplitude of the signal that is reflected back to the satellite from this neighborhood over here. Um, if I overlay the date of the invasion of Ukraine, we can see that it coincides basically perfectly with a massive change, in this case, a drop in the return signal. And there are a number of reasons that that might occur, right? Like maybe these buildings in the way that they were configured in this way were reflecting a large amount of the signal back to the satellite. And we can see that there's some variation, right, over time uh, in the preceding year. But that variation within the, uh, the preceding year kind of pales in comparison to the change that we experience afterwards. Um, and if we do two things here, the first thing that I'm doing is, is just plotting the uh, average of the return signal prior to the conflict. And that's this blue line here. And then I'm plotting the average of the return signal in the aftermath of the conflict, which is down here. Um, and I can add these bands to it, which show the standard deviation in the pre-war period and the standard deviation in the post-war period. So the standard deviation is just a measure of dispersion, right? It just tells you on average, how far away is each data point from the average from that sample. So what I've got now is two samples, a pre-war sample and a post-war sample, uh, a measure of the central tendency, so the average of both of those periods, and a measure of the internal sort of variability of those periods. So if we had to describe what's going on in this plot in, in layman's terms, right? Um, if if these regions overlapped, these um, this blue this blue sort of region and this green region, if they overlapped, we would say, well, there was a change. Like if this gap were smaller, right? There was a change in the um, like backscatter of this neighborhood in Mariupol after the war, but it's sort of within the realm of the normal sort of deviations that we expect from that area. Uh, prior to the conflict, right? But the fact that these uh, areas don't overlap at all says that the change in the average between the pre-war and the post-war uh, periods is several times greater than the average sort of uh, variability within each one of those periods. So in other words, this is a significant change and there is a statistical test called the T-test. It's one of the um, simplest statistical tests. You can do it by hand that relies fundamentally just on these four components, right? Um, the mean of sample A, the standard deviation of sample A, the mean of sample B, and the standard deviation of, of sample B. So there's yeah some some other stuff going on so if we um if we sort of zoom out for a second and think about the imagery that goes into this when the satellite is orbiting it can either be orbiting in an ascending or a descending uh, orbit right it can either be going uh south to north or north to south now obviously 
depending on the angle that we're looking at, we're going to get a, uh, a different sort of uh, backscatter profile from a particular point, right? So the first thing to do is um, to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples, right? So the first thing to do is to split the imagery by orbital pass. So we want to compare ascending um, imagery to ascending imagery and descending imagery to descending imagery, right? Um, and, and that's going to yield a much more sort of consistent uh, look, there's going to be less dispersion in, in each one of our samples. So the second thing that we want to do is to split the uh, data into uh, polarization. I'm, I'm not going to get too deep into polarizations because uh, it's quite uh, in the weeds. But basically, um, the, the polarizations sort of are differentially sensitive to different uh, scattering mechanisms. So um, the like vertical vertical uh, polarization is more sensitive to uh, like certain types of land cover change uh, and is like would be more affected by things like vegetation growing or uh, you know variations uh, of that sort and the vertical horizontal polarization would be uh, sensitive to a, a different um, set of like textural changes um, there is probably quite a lot of like electrical engineering theory as to you know what those changes would correspond to in the context of a uh, like urban like battle damage assessment. But to be honest, like that is over my head uh, as I'm not an electrical engineer. Um, so I am um, in the process of calculating this statistic uh, agnostic to whether or not one of these polarizations is more. Uh, important than the other, which is why ultimately I take the uh, maximum change from all four of these combinations. So this uh, may look a bit scary, but this is like very, very simple math, right? This is literally just the formula for uh, the mean, the, the average. The reason it has all these weird subscripts is because we're calculating a mean for each um, polar for each orbital pass. Um, at each polarization and in each time period. So we're calculating a different mean for each one of these combinations. So that's the only sort of scary bit here uh, in terms of the subscripts uh, pertain to these like disaggregations here. Then the, the same is true of, of this, which is just the standard deviation. Uh, and this is the t-test setup. And all the t-test is, is basically a signal to noise ratio. Uh, so the signal is the change in averages between the pre-war period and the, the post-war period. And the noise is uh, basically dividing that change in terms of the um, uh, standard deviation within each sample. So if it's very noisy, like if each sample is very noisy, even if there's a big change, then um, it's because this is the denominator, right, it's gonna, it's gonna shrink that change down uh, substantially. So in practice, this is actually really important, because there are a lot of places that change a lot. Um, if you think about uh, cities, uh, train stations, ports, construction sites, um, a lot of urban areas are quite static but a lot of other urban areas are quite dynamic. So if we didn't have some measure of variability, right, if we didn't integrate the standard deviation and divided, uh, if we just looked at the change in um, 
in uh, magnitude, right, the change in the average of the pre-war and the post-war sample, then we'd be picking up on a lot of areas that change a lot, right? Um, we'd be picking up on construction sites and ports and um, uh, train stations and stuff like that. So this signal-to-noise ratio is really useful because it lets us hone in on areas that ha have low variability in both periods, right? If we go back here, there's relatively low variability um, in a neighborhood prior to, in a suburban neighborhood, right? Prior to a conflict, this area doesn't change very much. Maybe the grass grows and, and the trees grow and stuff, but it's not hugely variable. Um, compared to a port, for example, or a train station, which would have a much higher standard deviation um, and would require a much larger change um, in, in backscatter to register as a significant, a statistically significant change. Um, I've sort of changed this bit. It used to be an average of the T values at each uh, combination of orbital pass and polarization, but it's now uh, the maximum. And I've found that that uh, just tends to be more accurate. Um, so let's look at how it works. So the output of this model is a raster. So it's just a matrix of, of values and the values are T values. So these T values correspond to, uh, so in like uh, statistics, when we perform hypothesis testing, if you run like a regression or you run a t-test or something like that, um, we're generally trying to assess the likelihood of observing a uh, difference between two samples that is as large as the one that we're observing due to random chance. So this is a way for us to basically try to assess um, the likelihood of observing this strong of a change randomly. Uh, and the T values correspond, there are sort of um, commonly accepted thresholds of um, the, the T value that correspond to uh, statistical significance at the 95% confidence level. So in a, in a large enough sample, a T value of uh, 1.96 corresponds to statistical significance at the 95% confidence level. So what that means is um, we would say there is a 95% uh, chance that the difference in means that we're observing is not due to uh, random chance alone. Um, you can use a higher threshold of T to correspond to an even higher threshold of, of certainty. So a, a T value of 2.5, roughly, I think it's 2.58, would correspond to statistical significance at the 99% confidence level. Now, what's useful about this is that it's not being trained anywhere, right? It's looking at each pixel and um, it is sort of looking at that pixel's history prior to a destructive event. Um, and then it's understanding that pixel's, um, you know, average backscatter and its sort of average variability. And then it looks at whether or not a statistically significant change has occurred after uh, the onset of a war, or in this case, um, the Beirut explosion. So what this map 
is showing is a map of T values. So these purple areas are areas that have a low T value um, that is not statistically significant. And um, these, these yellow areas are areas that have higher T values. So what we can then do is import um, building footprints. And these are very now very commonly available. And, and that's kind of a recent development. But we can basically calculate the value of this raster within each building footprint. Uh, and then get an average and then assign the average value of this raster to each footprint um, and then go from this sort of raster to a footprint level estimation. So that's what's going on in the tool when you uh, draw a box over a particular area. So to, to get a better sense for how this works um, in the context of Gaza, this is a high-resolution satellite image of Izbat Beit Hanun, which is in northern Gaza. I, I actually just zoomed into it um, at the beginning of this talk. And we could see uh, that the model was predicting quite a lot of damage. I want to draw your attention in particular to this row of apartment buildings in the, in the north part of the image. If we look at a satellite image, a high-res image, uh, since the onset of the conflict, we can see this row of buildings has been completely destroyed, but also that these, uh, this neighborhood to the south is also um, largely leveled. And if we overlay on top of that the, um, the damage probability raster, so the map of T values, we see that we get a lot of high T values in this area with, uh, in the north where the, where the um, buildings collapsed. And um, in this area down here as well. And it's even actually picking up on an area that appears to have uh, been missed by the UNISAT damage assessment. So the UNISAT uh, damage assessment, uh, these points are the areas that the UN have deemed to be destroyed on the basis of um, scrolling through high resolution optical satellite imagery. Now, this may be due to the fact that this area got destroyed um, after this damage assessment was conducted. But if we look over here, right, what it's picking up on is this apartment complex that was standing and has since been destroyed. And this one here that was standing and has since been destroyed. So this whole area is registering as, um, as destroyed. This is a different neighborhood, uh, Zaytun. And once again, we can see quite close agreement between the uh, the uh, UNISAT damage points and the uh, predicted damaged areas from the model. Uh, so as I said, this was actually sort of a workflow that I developed originally in the context of uh, Ukraine. And uh, we were working on a sort of one year anniversary of the conflict um, article. And we wanted to do a damage assessment in most of the major cities in Ukraine over time, uh, so at multiple sort of time periods. And to sort of get a sense of like when the damage occurred, and we can actually see quite different damage profiles in, in each city. So Kiev actually has suffered a very like relatively small amount of damage over the entire period. 
uh, Bakhmut sort of suffered increasing damage over time. And it's almost like an exponential increase um, versus other places like Mariupol had sort of a logarithmic uh, damage profile, right? A really sharp increase at the beginning, uh, but then it sort of leveled off. Um, you know, once you destroy basically half a city, you kind of run out of, of stuff to destroy, uh, basically. So that also involved, yeah, making some maps of the, the damaged areas in, in Ukraine. And the same methodology we applied to the uh, earthquake in Turkey to determine which areas had been destroyed. And they actually then took the, the building footprints uh, that I generated to do some further analysis. And they found basically that poorer areas suffered uh, more building damage than uh, than richer areas. So we've got about 10, 15 minutes left. Um, I'm happy to take some questions at this point. If anyone, oh my gosh, the chat's been popping off. Yeah, <laughs> but, busy, yeah, that... busy. <laughs> um, thank you, Ollie, for that. That's really, really fascinating. And thank you so much for going through all yeah. of the statistics um, as well. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for thanks for staying awake on this uh, Thursday <laughs> evening. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It really is. Um, uh, we have quite a few questions, so I'm just going to start from the top, um, just so that it's easier and I make sure I don't miss anything. Um, a couple of them have been answered by other people, but I, I think it's important to ask you as well. Um, somebody asked, what are usually the costs of tasking satellite companies with taking certain pictures that aren't usually publicly accessible? Um, for example, does this kind of research cost a lot to kind of task the satellites or is there, is it kind of open source? Uh, um, so the, the, the Sentinel one, which is the data that I'm using is entirely uh, open access. So it's provided for free by the European space agency. Um, so the, it's, yeah, it's all open access and free tasking a satellite. I have never done. But actually, um, you, you might be better placed to answer this than, than me because Bellingcat does have um, the, the capability to task planet. So uh, you probably have more experience with that than I do. Yeah, and we have a partnership. Uh, well, we have an agreement with Planet. Uh, so we get a certain number of taskings per month, uh, but that does cost us. Uh, but sometimes we do have like additional tasking uh capabilities every month and if we ever have kind of space or availability with some of our taskings we often open it up to the community actually in here we've done quite a few uh kind of satellite taskings that have been driven by people in discord which is great and really fascinating um but yes that that service does cost us um okay next question um sarah asked hi ollie i'm sure this varies based on municipality and situation but besides building damage can we extra extrapolate anything about utility damage for example if my house is standing but sewer and water is destroyed i might decide to leave gaza is probably not the best example for this since utilities are so fragile to begin with but i'm thinking ahead to other conflicts um anything on that a couple of people in the chat said that that's something that they feel is possible and that they might be looking into themselves but um is it have you worked on that at all in terms of looking at utility damage um so 
I should say, like we've been we've been using the term like damage detection and uh, damage probability and stuff like that. But actually, all we're doing is change detection, right? We're just um, sort of configuring our change detection task in such a way that it aligns um, as best as we can with battle damage, right? Um, but but we're picking up on all forms of change. So one really important thing that affects uh, my analysis and the analysis that um, other people who are doing similar stuff are doing is that while the vast majority of changes is damage to buildings, there's also other forms of change occurring. Um, so like refugee camps being set up, uh, those will register as change as well. Um, it all kind of depends on the nature of the change, right? Like if there's something wrong with the uh, utilities underneath your house, right? Like uh, if um, a, a pipe, like a water pipe has been destroyed somewhere uh, upstream, like a water main, for example, or a gas main um, has been destroyed, then your house is obviously not going to have water or gas, but the damage didn't occur to your sort of property. So all we can see is whether or not the kind of texture or topography of a given area has changed substantially since the beginning of the war. Now, what you could do is if you know the locations of, um, for example, gas mains or water mains, and you know, for example, that they run um, like through this field, right? And you can see a bunch of damage to that field, then you can maybe investigate that further and say, okay, well, it looks like they've bombed the heck out of the area through which a lot of the utilities pass. Um, you could use that to maybe investigate that further, but it'd be very difficult to sort of, um, you know, off the top of your head, say for certain that um, like the utilities in, in a certain area have been damaged. Todd Robbins uh, asked earlier, um, showing my lack of physics knowledge, but does cloud cover, snowstorms especially, affect the radar signal slash profile? So deck aperture radar is able to image uh, through cloud cover. So the Sentinel-1 satellite operates on 5 gigahertz um, radio waves. That is uh, basically the same frequency or very similar frequency to a Wi-Fi router, like a 5G router, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and if you think about the Wi-Fi in your house, it can go through like walls and stuff like that, right? Now, obviously the parameters of the task are different and, and I don't know enough about electrical engineering uh, to, to give you sort of a quantitative answer to that question. But um, synthetic aperture radar does image through clouds. And that is one of its main benefits. It even images uh, at night, which is another benefit. Um, certain types of synthetic aperture radar can even image through sort of thin surfaces. So I think there was a case study a while back where there were these hangars in like the desert in China. And um, the hangars had the, mat the material that was covering the hangars was like the same material that you get on like a tennis bubble, you know, that white sort of bubble um, material that covers like a tennis court. I think it's some type of plastic. Um, and 
I forget what band they were using, but uh, a certain synthetic aperture radar uh, imagery provider was able to basically image through that thin canopy. So it can certainly handle clouds. Uh, it may cause some slight interference, but it's a hell of a lot less than um, what you get with optical imagery, right? Like if there are, if there's even sort of thin cloud cover and optical imagery, you're pretty much uh, up Shit's Creek. Uh, you got to wait until the next, um, the next time imagery becomes available, uh, which is also quite important, particularly in the context of places like Ukraine. Um, that being said, uh, snow on the ground does affect the sort of like dielectric properties of the surface that you're looking at. So that will um, affect the way in which uh, like the amplitude of the signal that is uh, reflected, the material of a building, you know, whether or not it's metal or wood or whatever also affects it. But um, the the sort of point of a t-test is that it um sort of integrates that variability into its analysis right so if there is a lot of seasonal variability in the backscatter amplitude that's due to things like snow um that will create a higher standard deviation for that pixels uh pre-war period which will make it uh which will increase the sort of um, magnitude of the change in backscatter that's required to register as a statistically significant change. So it incorporates that variability um, as, as part of the test. Okay, lots of questions coming in. By the way, someone asked in the chat whether uh, the slides are available online and uh, Michael Krupshank linked your uh, GitHub paper on, on this subject, on the pixel, um, the PW2T test. Um, so I'll include, yeah. I'll include that link if you're comfortable with that only in the podcast um, description, just so that uh, people listening can can access that. Um, Fraser asks, you have an amazingly useful tutorial on Google L Engine here. Uh, he's referring to RS4 OSINT, uh, which I think you built with uh, our staff member, uh, Logan Williams, who's fantastic on the tech team. Uh, do you plan to make the code available for building damage detection? Yeah, yeah. Um, so right now, what I am doing is, uh, so I, I don't work for Bellingcat, right? Like I'm a contributor, I work at UCL, and I have to publish journal articles. And um, I'm going to obviously try to publish this methodology as a, as a journal article. Uh, but that's a much more sort of tedious and um, slow process to uh journalism so once that is out i am going to yeah release like the whole methodology that being said there's an overview of the basic uh, methodology including code in this uh, remote sensing for open source investigations uh guide that is in the uh chat fabulous okay we're running out of time so i'm going to ask both these questions simultaneously uh because i think the the first one's pretty uh, might be pretty easy for you to answer. Zip asks, have you run into issues with censored content from satellites, e.g. military facilities? And then Snapfastly has asked, aside from conflicts, what other fields could your work be applied? Um, yeah, I mean, two quick answers to that. The first is that the uh, Sentinel-1 data is not censored in, in any way. Um, and actually, I think the first article I wrote, or no, um, the first article I wrote with Bellingcat was with um, Wim, who's in the chat. Uh, hi, Wim. 
Um, the second article I wrote with Bellingcat was specifically looking at military facilities using Sentinel-1 data because, um, long story short, certain types of missile defense systems like the Patriot missile or um, the Russian S-400 operate on the same frequency as the Sentinel-1 satellite and, and generate interference. So far from being censored over military areas, it's actually sort of almost a useful way to identify military areas um, because of interference from military equipment. Uh, the answer to the second question, um, can this, uh, what can this be applied to other than conflict? I mean, the most straightforward answer would be um, like general building damage assessment, right? Um, from earthquakes or hurricanes or uh, any form of natural disaster, the nuances of those differences, like the difference between um, earthquake damage and battle damage, there are some differences in terms of like how and when and where the damage appears. But um, as I sort of showed you briefly in, in the work that I did with The Economist, we did apply this methodology to the earthquakes in Turkey to um, good effect. Um, that being said, again, all this is, is a change detection algorithm, right? And the change detection, the, the change that we're trying to detect in this context is battle damage. But if you could think of any other type of uh, change that we might want to uh, detect, then you could apply it to that. I, I've been doing quite a lot of work on ship detection, which is uh, sort of spiritually quite similar, even though it's a completely different uh, context. It uses the same uh, data, so Sentinel-1, and um, tries to do a similar thing, which is detect uh, a change in Sentinel-1, the presence of a ship. Wamas has just shared a great open source tool in the chat uh, that tracks oil spills using Sentinel-1, and that's called Cerulean. Thank you so much, Ollie, for joining us and for explaining more about your tool um i hope it was useful for everybody here thank you so much for everyone's questions as well yes this is the last stage talk of this year but we will be back in uh 2024 uh, amazing uh talks coming your way great thanks everyone yeah thank you for listening to the stage talk if you'd like to catch a stage talk live where you can ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Dawn by Newer Self and is courtesy of Artlist.